This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So much of who we are gets shaped at the dinner table. Are you going to have tough conversations? Are you going to raise kids that really are willing to defend what they feel and what they think and to say what they think? Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Girls Who Run and Green the World with Diana Cap. Diana's journalism career has taken her inside San Quentin Prison and to deepest Afghanistan. She's covered teen suicide in Palo Alto, apps and bots to fight depression, and her dad falling headlong in love at 85. Diana received her MBA at Stanford University, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, San Francisco Magazine, San Francisco Chronicle, Elle, O and the Oprah Magazine, and much, much more. Her first book, Girls Who Run the World, 31 CEOs Who Mean Business, was published in 2019 and was endorsed by Madeleine Albright and featured in Forbes and on NPR's Marketplace. Her latest book is Girls Who Green the World, 34 Rebel Women Out to Save Our Planet. Diana loves the Sawtooth Mountains, Neil Young, her 5 a.m. running club, and climbing mountains. Diana, welcome to the show. Hi, Dr. Dan. It's so nice to be here. So you ended your book with the sentence, the beginning sentence, your head should be spinning. And my head still is spinning. And we're going to talk about all the reasons that uh, all of our heads should be spinning and will be spinning once everyone also reads your book. Mm -hmm. And um, before we take a deep dive into the amazing women, girls and women who uh, are saving our planet and all the reasons we need to. Tell us a little bit about your road to becoming a journalist. What, like, what influenced you? I always say I had the most circuitous career path one could ever imagine. And I firmly believe that all the different steps along the way um, are the inputs that help you kind of become whoever you're meant to become. And Many people do not have a straightforward path or a passion at a young age that they're certain they're pursuing. Um, so I started out, and when I was in second grade, I went to 
cake decorating and hairdressing as the two career workshops at my elementary school career fair. (laughs) And then I went on to become an English major at the University of Michigan. And I went to work on Capitol Hill for a senator from Michigan, which sounded really cool, but was incredibly boring um, because mostly I just did administrative things like trying to find tickets for constituents to visit the Capitol And mostly I'd find those tickets underneath my desk about three weeks after they were supposed to have visited and received them in the mail. So sort of detail-oriented work is not my strong suit. Um, And I guess um, what I love is storytelling. And I ended up, um, I mean, the, the string that kind of connects everything is storytelling and communications. And so I did that in the senator's office a little bit. And then I um, ended up in moving to California and working in a startup biotech company, which had a really complicated uh, technology, which I helped to kind of translate for press and for investors. Mm -hmm. And then I went to business school because I was sort of working in this startup Um, environment where I got really excited about people that were creating something out of nothing and had big ideas. And it felt so different from sort of the Washington life that I grew up in. That's also where I, where I grew up. And, um, but I realized the storytelling I wanted to do was really about things that matter to me and people in this world more so than to sell something or market a company but I built my journalism career without formal training. And really, I always say just, it was like brick by brick. I, mm-hmm. I would pitch you know, these one paragraph stories to the best of the Bay issue of San Francisco Magazine. And I'd spend you know, a full day writing one paragraph. And then I, um, you know, I worked my way up and, and I had some lucky, events happen that, you know, had an editor give me a shot. And for the past 20 years, I've been doing freelance journalism for all different publications. And really, I always say it's about things that happen to my friends and neighbors. It's, mm-hmm. I'm always listening and looking out for things that are just interesting. Well, your, your books are all about purpose and being mission driven. And as I was finishing your book, and you are, um, you know, speak so glowingly and supportive of all of the women that you feature in your books. And I was thinking, does Diana also know that she's an innovator? Does she does she consider herself the, an innovator and a um, and someone who's also paving the way? I've come to see myself that way. I I nice. never realized nice. how much being an author is an entrepreneurial endeavor and it's really a one woman show and you have to have so much belief in yourself because you're always pitching and you're, you know, no one's employing you kind of on a day-to-day basis. You're always selling your ideas, selling yourself. And a lot of people, you know, are not believers and you have to convince them and there's a lot of rejection. I, one thing I love is, um, I'm part of this writers cooperative called the San Francisco Writers Grotto. And a lot of us on each year on New Year's Day, we commit to getting like 25 rejections in the coming year, like uh, from stories. And it's yeah. because 
we understand that the only way to like, get ambitious wor- stories published is to pitch ambitiously. And that's going to involve just a lot of recogni- uh, you know, a lot of rejection. Which is w- what a great thing to lean into. And for, of course, to model to our, um, our kids of all ages about stepping into it and taking big swings and, uh, and just swinging again, knowing yeah. that. You, yeah. Um, one of the quotes that I loved that was said about uh, your first book, Girls Who Run the World, is Girls Who Run the World is a blueprint for badassery and bravery. <laughs> mm. And that it's tr- like your books like fire me up. Right. I mean, they, they like they get me exci- They got me excited about possibilities. And of course, in a time when they're are a lot of problems, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of conflict, there's a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, what's, what's the best thing we can do when things are not looking good, and we're feeling powerless? What do we do, right? Step in, do something. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I find most amazing, and like, really fires me up about the women in the book is most of them, um, get into whatever endeavor they're they're doing with zero knowledge of the topic that they're pursuing. It's like, you know, whether they're um, founding, you know, Spanx like um, Sarah Blakely, or they're starting a company that's going to make leather out of mushrooms. It's like they get some idea and they they just learn about it like any of us would. They look on LinkedIn and they contact people like crazy, cold call people. Um, The woman who founded Rent the Runway, um, she wanted to get in touch with Diane von Furstenberg and she made up emails that she thought would um, possibly be her email until one went through. And I mean, I've certainly done that as a journalist and it's a pretty good technique. Um, but living in this era with so many resources available to us, so much we can find just mm-hmm. through sleuthing. Um, you know, there's there's a woman in the book, um, Sarah Paigiu. She's in the Green Book, and she makes um, home cleaning agents. She brings them into tablet form, and so she literally went on LinkedIn and she looked up chemists who worked in like the candy industry. You know, because she was thinking about who could make tablets that would have like a hard coating um, that would we'd be able to send through the mail. And I just think it's it's so much kind of open thinking and mm-hmm. trial and error and willingness to put yourself out there and not taking no for an answer. And, you know, just so many qualities that I think all of us could use a healthy dose of, you know, in our day to day life. For sure. And um you ask the question, what's the way to change the future? And you answer it by saying, raise up a generation of girls who expect to be CEO. Right. Yeah, that's, and and that, that's a very mindful part. That's a very intentional, an intentional way to parent. Right. I mean, I didn't come up that way and I definitely didn't have really big expectations for myself. And I was very impacted by kind of gender and, you know, that girls do more things on the English side of the ledger than on the STEM side. I just heard your, you had the talk with um, 
the novelist who's trying to encourage women in STEM. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it has so much to do with what people around us expect from us. And in very subtle ways, they're sending messages. And it's not surprising that women don't want to, don't see themselves becoming CEOs because two weeks before Girls Who Run the World came out, um, Forbes published the, a list in the magazine. And there's many of these lists and they're, they're quite impactful because they become the lists that get looked at when committees are getting formed and conference speakers are being appointed and, um, you know, universities are hiring adjunct faculty and all that. And this list was America's 100 Most Innovative Leaders was the title of it. And it was 99 men and one woman. And I I mean, it was just a lightning bolt moment for me because I was sitting there with my daughter, Emma, who at the time was 12. And I was just thinking in my mind, like, what is this kid going to think when she reads this list? Because she's this incredibly powerful young person who literally came out, I always say, like with her hands on her hips, you know, issuing orders. And we were all forced to play school. And she always appointed herself the teacher and Um, you know, we were not free to leave until she granted us permission and all of that. And, and yet this very leaderly powerful young woman looks at this list and says, yeah, but people like me don't get to the top and it's everywhere. It's, I've been teaching, um, some workshops right now on writing op-eds, teaching, um, particularly young women to, um, put their opinions out there and, you look at the studies on how many bylines on the op-ed pages come from female voices and it's, you know, less than 20%, you know, whatever, whatever field you look at, we're making progress for women, but it's still incredibly slow. Mm-hmm. And um, we, the year that I graduated from Stanford Business School, which was 1996, there was zero women in the Fortune 500, which is the 500 biggest companies mm-hmm. in America. And now tw- I'm about to have my 25th reunion this summer. And we still only have 24 women in the Fortune mm-hmm. 500. So it's you're not, as a young woman, young girl, you're not going to look out at that and say, you know, there's a path for me to make it to the top as CEO. You're going to look at that and say it's, you know, it's a rare occurrence. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, I very much believe it's kind of this adage that is maybe a little bit um, overused, but it's it's true, which is, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And right. Right. we have so many pioneering models for young women of the past. Like there's all these books you can find about Amelia Earhart and Marie Curie, but it's difficult to find places that a young person, you know, who probably doesn't read magazines or listen to the to podcasts the way adults do to understand, like, who are the women today that mm-hmm. are, you know, taking all kinds of risks and inventing the coolest new thing. And yeah. there's plenty of them out there. That's what I can tell you is that it wasn't hard to find a set to do for my books. And I could do 10 books. I bet. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's incredible amount of interesting work going on. And yet, um, you know, it's hard for women to get funded by venture capitalists. And, you know, all, I'm sure you've heard all these stories, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, we're still very much a work in progress. 
Speaking of your the courses you're teaching on writing op-ed pieces, I read your 2019 op-ed piece in the Washington Post, and you said, I'm not thinking about how we push progress for working women. I am focusing on how we raise our girls. I think it's time to play the long game. Now, three years plus later, how do you tell us, tell us what is that long game as a woman raising women and as a woman who now has extensively studied these change making women? I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, it's not an easy question to answer. Um, and I don't have like a magic pill for how we're going to raise up confident young girls, but I do know that at a very young age, they stop feeling sort of their sense of power and, um, we need to intervene when they're quite young to help them continue to believe in themselves and, um, show them models and pathways that, you know, have them doing things that are important and matter and move the needle and are good for society. Um, I just think it's not about just getting pay parity. Like, I think that's the problem with where women stop, you know, negotiating salaries for themselves happens when they're little girls and they, you know, they don't learn to stand up for themselves or at the dinner table, they're less likely to make their opinions hurt. So for instance, when I'm at my dinner table with my, you know, two older kids who are, you know, now they're both in college and they're super woke and they're, you know, they walk all over my youngest daughter who just isn't as old as they are, hasn't had an, as much experience like defending her opinions and voicing her opinions. Mm-hmm. And so I really try to make sure that she, no, listen to Emma. Let's, what is she, let's hear what she has to say. Like, mm-hmm. don't judge her and cut her off before she even finishes her sentence. Like you have to get in there and, you know, make a point of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a youngest thing. And it's also a gender thing. You know, mm-hmm. she's, she's a little bit timid to, even though she's a powerhouse, it's like when she's facing down these siblings, it's, it's not easy for her. And I think so much of, you know, who we are gets shaped at the dinner table. Like, mm-hmm. are you going to have tough conversations? Are you going to, you know, raise kids that really, you know, are willing to defend what they feel and what they think and to say what they think. Mm-hmm. Yes. For them to have a voice that their voice matters, that their voice is heard. Um, and it, it's, it's repeated, right? It's this repeated practice and experience of saying, saying what you think and ultimately being heard but also having the courage to continue to say and say and say, even when you're not heard. And that also was a thread that I saw through all of the, all of the women. I mean, these women did not stop, right? No, ma- no matter who said what to them, they just kept going. I know. I love that story of Sarah Blakely, who, you know, she's has to cold call her way to sell her pantyhose in 
um, Nordstrom and then she they like hide it in the back and so she goes in there and she sees it there and she she goes to Target and buys her own you know cardboard rack and she brings it in inside her raincoat and she just sets it up at the front of the store and you know she doesn't care who's going to ask her whether she belongs there she's gonna she's gonna mm-hmm. do that and then she you know calls all her friends and tells them to go buy out the the stock in the store so that they'll order more like she really takes charge and i mean i just admire that kind of yeah. puts her so much and i always use this word moxie which i mm-hmm. i really believe is like one of the greatest traits that we can teach young people and young girls particularly and and part of that is like allowing them to screw up because you're not going to have moxie if you're always being cautious about making sure you get the grades and making sure you do everything right and follow all the directions. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. girls are, that's kind of how they, they tend to operate is they follow rules and they're good in school and, you know, all of those things. And then we give them so much praise for that, yeah. that that's, you know, leads them to believe that that's what, what they should be doing. These women are not looking for outside affirmation. No, no. You know, they're, and that's so important. It's, you know. Is, would we, is Moxie a synonym for chutzpah? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or ballsy or. Yeah, right. I love that. Um, And there's, you know, Sarah Blakely, she always says that her dad always asked at the dinner table, like, mm -hmm. you know, don't tell me the best thing that you did today, but like, tell me what did you you know, what'd you screw up today? And that was always like really celebrated. And I think that's, and I always tell my kids, I'm really open about, you know, the things that don't go well for me and kind of like being vulnerable in that way. And, you know, it makes your kids think more of you, not less when you tell them that you too, you know, go into an interview and like totally forgot who you were supposed to be talking to and, you know, spoke to them as if they were someone else or, you know, all the things we do. It's so important. It's so important. And I, it being a parent, we're both being a, our regular human being and we're being a parent at the same time. And I think if we're all striving to be the best versions of ourselves for, for many people that can go towards this perfectionistic, I never make a mistake. Everything looks good. Everything works out. And I'm not even talking about social media. I'm talking in real life, trying to portray that. And we don't always recognize that, that we are modeling. That's how you're supposed to be for your kids. Like this is how it is to be human. Always do everything right. Always kick butt. Always get what you want. And to your point, gosh, if we can model the reality of being human and growing, which is we're making lots of mistakes, we're nervous, we're trying new things, some things work, some things don't, and then them seeing us get through it either graciously or at times with our own, you know, struggles within, within limits, depending on the, you know, not too much information for your kids, depending on the topic or the age, but then they get to see that model of what it's like to be an adult. I mean, one of the critiques that I get for the, um, how the green book is that, you know, some of these stories that you tell, whether it's about, you know, a woman making board shorts out of plastic bottles or, you know, someone that's using the waste from juiceries and making chips out of it, you know, obviously these things are not going to make a dent in, an issue that involves, you know, we need massive policy change. We need to 
you know, get off fossil fuels and all of this. And, and besides, you know, Diana, a lot of these women are not going to make it. These are, you know, hard to fund ideas or they're not going to be, um, they're not going to pan out. And that is not the point. The point is that we, we need people out there like doing the experiments and trying new things and showing us that rather than like sit around and talk about how we're doomed, instead they're out there like in whatever small corner of the universe they're choosing and they're passionate about, they're trying to do it in a better way. And there's always something to learn from that. And who knows mm-hmm. where that's going to lead. Maybe that company's not going to um, last the test of time, but that technology is going to birth another technology. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so many entrepreneurs, like they don't succeed in their first endeavor, but they succeed in their third from all the lessons that they learned right. along the way. And so I think that's also a really important message of the book that I'm not suggesting that I'm holding up, you know, the set of women that are going to solve um, the global warming crisis, but I'm holding up doers who are choosing to take action. And so much of what I've read about, um, you know, young people feeling climate anxiety Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. feeling really paralyzed, that the best way to, to kind of fight that is to actually just take small actions and form a community of people taking actions and that's giving you the positive feeling that gives you energy instead of yes. just to sit yes. back and feel kind of depleted by all of this. To your point, we know that people who are experiencing existential depression, existential anxiety um, about all of this tough stuff that we're facing as a as a people, as a planet, as a universe, when you step in and can take action and feel like you are doing at least something small, it does give you purpose and it can take away those often debilitating uh, human symptoms that we have with depression and anxiety. And I, and, I open you know, I open the book with this story. I don't know if you read. That's where I was going right now. That's okay. where, so that's I, where I, I'm going right now. We're we're talking about <laughs> Susan Solomon, right? Yep. Yep. So yeah, yes. I mean, the most hopeful story that one could ever teach young people, and young people and people our age need to know this story, and they don't know it. And it's the fact that in the '70s, when we were all scared to death of the ozone hole and how we were all going to fry because there was this hole in the atmosphere that was, you know, protecting us from the sun's harmful radiation that, um, we learned what the chemical was that was causing this. And Susan Solomon was a young scientist who did a lot of the research in Antarctica, um, standing on the roof of the McMurdo research state station and, you know, figuring out that chlorofluorocarbons in aerosol, like hairspray and refrigerants, were the cause of um, this chemical reaction that was resulting in the depletion of ozone. And that, um, you know, the world took notice when she sounded the alarm. And we all convened in Montreal and we signed the Mo- Montreal Protocol, and every nation on earth 
signed on to a treaty, which is the first and only time that has ever happened. And we banned the use of these substances. And now the ozone hole is a problem that when I go around on my book tour and I ask groups of young people, like, do you have you even heard of something called the ozone hole? You know, maybe I get like an eighth of the hands go up. Mm-hmm. So it's really a yesterday problem because we we solved it. And granted, it's much simpler than what we're facing with climate change because there was a, an easy substitute. So there was like a practical solution that we could substitute for CFCs. Um, and that's not as easy with fossil fuel because we're still, you know, trying to develop further the clean energy technologies that will be replacements. But mm-hmm. it still is a very important story to recognize that we've been at this place before where everyone thinks we're, we're you know, cataclysmic disasters mm-hmm. around the corner. And we we did manage to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And that that intro story brought me right back when I think of the three in, in hindsight, the three things in my childhood which kept me up at night, one for a period of time was the um, Iran hostages, our hostage mm-hmm. situation. I think I was in fifth grade. There, of course, was all the way through elementary school is preparing to be um, nuclear bombed and to, uh, I don't know, go under your desk as if that will yeah. help. Um, and then the third was the ozone and learning about, oh my gosh, like there's a giant hole and we are all going to fry. And yes. so it, it's so hopeful. It is hopeful that our kids don't even know about that. That's, that's it is. shocking. It is. Um, but this relates to what you were re- referring to previously, what is called eco anxiety and our kids, our generation of kids who worry like, I don't know what the percentage is, but I feel like when we were young, there was a lot of, you, you could be kind of clueless. You could just be a kid. And whether it's just the growth of our um, of our just development as a human species, social media, you know, people are becoming more and more aware, more connected. We have a whole generation of lots and lots of kids and teens who are chronically anxious about their future and the future of our civilization? Well, I'll tell you some incredible statistics, which is a survey of 10,000 teens around the world, ages 18 to 25, um, done um, last year in 2021 and published in The Lancet, um, found that 56% of those young people agree with the statement, humanity is doomed. And 40% say that they would consider not having kids due to fears about what kind of world they would be bringing those kids into. And so, I mean, those are such scary statistics to me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Just becoming at things. And, and I know that's how young people feel. There's, there is such a sense of inevitability. And I think it's because we've been trying so hard to sound the alarm and no one's been listening. So the media just keeps escalating and escalating, like, you know, that we have 10 years and then that's it. And I mean, some of those things, there is a lot more nuance than how it gets headlined in the paper. And it's not true that we have just 10 years. It's not a black and white on and off. It's like, yeah, we are, we need to 
start rolling it all back and it's time is of great right. urgency, but it's not like in 10 years, the lights are going to go out, you know? No, it's not. And so the movie, uh, don't look up, which I thought was fascinating because it's, uh, it's, it's, a. Uh, a tale about everything we're talking about. On the one hand, the lights are going to go off pretty immediately. But on the other hand, it's so obvious what the science is telling everyone and everyone's just going about their business as if nothing is going to happen. And it seems like we have, and I'm going to be very general here, we have a perhaps a much older generation who is living out their life as they always have as with whatever years they have left. And then we have a younger generation that sees the long haul that is really thinking about their future and um, is not only nervous and scared, but as you feature all of these people are doing something about it. Like, and, and that's what, the, that's where the hope is in these young minds and these young leaders who at very young ages and, you know, girls and women who are changing changing the world. I mean, there are you you there are some amazing girls who have made a difference. Yeah, talk about Greta Thunberg. She's mm -hmm. made a huge difference. You know, there's the woman in the book Shelby O'Neill who, you know, she helped pass legislation in California so that we're not using single-use plastic and straws and there's a um like that restaurants must ask rather than just give it to you. And mm -hmm. you know, she was working on that when she was, she wasn't even in high school yet. She was wearing her Girl Scout uniform, you know, standing in front of this California legislature. Um, so it's, there's a lot of power in young people. And in fact, there've been some really interesting studies about where they look at sort of how do adults, parents largely form their perspectives on climate change and um, what needs to be done. And a lot of it, they learn from the, you know, they're persuaded by their children and mm -hmm. that young girls are the most impactful as far as young people, because they're such good communicators at a, at a young age. Mm. So when they educated young girls and then they tested the parents' points of view they found that those people had much more kind of evolved view and recognized the science more correctly. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, it's, it's mm -hmm. truly the case that young people have a powerful voice mm -hmm. and role to play. So back to why my head was spinning and why everyone else's head will be spinning. We're going to, I'm going to give you some spinning material right now, everyone listening and how, so we can talk about how the people in the book are changing, are, are trying to change these crazy facts. So a few facts. 30% of food goes to waste. 30 to 40% of fish that is caught is discarded. An estimated 530,000 tons of food is wasted each year at school cafeterias. 27,000 trees are cut down every day for toilet paper. A Lego... I'm a Lego guy. A Lego will last 1,300 years in the ocean before decomposing. Wait, there's a few more. Our throwaway plastic culture has produced a global mass of plastic equivalent in weight to 80 million blue whales or 822,000 Eiffel Towers 
or one billion elephants. And one more, on average, humans produce 320 pounds of waste per person each year. That's, you, that's, you that's, that's just a few. And we mm-hmm. throw away, on average, as Americans, 80 pounds of clothing, each of us, oh, right. every single year. And yes. we keep our clothes, on average, for six months, less time than it takes us to go through a bottle of ketchup. <sighs> Let's just sit with this for one moment here. I find myself, as I've gotten older, so much more aware of all of these things. And I have to say there were decades of my life that I didn't give it any thought. So having this, inform- I mean, getting older and getting more mature helps, but having information fed to us so we actually can make informed decisions is so important. And this, why is this not mainstream? Why, I mean, it, it, do people just turn their, is it out there or do people just like, what, what's, what's your take on it? I don't know. It's like we don't want to hear it, so we just keep our heads in the sand. I I know. I mean, so much of this was new to me. Like, I was hardly um, deeply aware of any of these issues. I had no idea why food waste was such a big problem, not only because we have people that are going hungry, but because when we pack food in landfill, it's so tightly packed underground, it doesn't get oxygen, so it doesn't decompose. Mm -hmm. And then it produces methane, which is the same gas that is holding heat. That is why we're so worried about cattle and other animals that are, you know, warming the planet at something like 30 times the rate of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. So, and then, you know, there's other issues with why food waste is such a problem, which is Think about the amount of water that that's going into growing these crops. Think about how we're cutting down forests in order to grow food to feed animals. And then all of that going to waste and it's being transported using energy and then going to waste. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of my really favorite stories, very entrepreneurial, very young woman. And she actually went to the same high school as my kids. Her name is Kayla Abe. And her first business, she'd worked in um, the San Francisco farmer's market. So she really understood a lot about the challenges for small farmers. And what she saw is they were bringing all their goods to the market. And then so much was going to waste because supermarkets will not buy, they don't sell everything at the farmer's market and supermarkets will not buy things that don't look perfect. Mm -hmm. It has like beauty standards way beyond what we have for women or for, you know, a zucchini. And so she got on this kick of, we need to start consuming what she calls ugly produce. And so her first company was called Ugly Pickles And she was making, you know, things besides just pickles. There was carrots and sauces and things out of vegetables that maybe were like a little bit yellow or they had a few bumps in a place or was a two-legged carrot. And then now she's just opened a really cool pizzeria in the Mission neighborhood of San Francisco. And everything she serves there is made from ugly produce and then, you know, cuts of meat and fish that, you know, maybe in other countries, they're delicacies, but in the United States, we consider them waste. And it's just, it's like the whole 
yes. place is just like a piece of living activism where she's making a point and making it really fun and everything in the, the um, restaurant is um, remade, recovered, repainted. It's it's all reuse, reuse. The, well, and let, let's the give her a, let's give her a shout out for everyone so you can go visit. Yeah. It's uh, this is Shuggies. Shuggies and natural wine. Is it? Yes. Yeah, and she's getting a ton of press. She was just in the New York Times last week, and she's been an eater. And yeah, it's getting a lot of attention. And it's a she's an incredible young person. Also, an important uh, highlight, important highlights in the book is how you also talk about how climate change is going to dis is and is going to disproportionately impact communities of color. So, for example, approximately thirteen percent of African American children have asthma compared to seven percent of white children, and the death rate for African American children with asthma is one per one million. Whereas white children, it's one per 10 million. And also climate change will cause the most economic harm in the nation's poorest counties. And many of those places like in Texas, Wilkinson County, Zavala County, Mississippi are home to predominantly people of color. And so we have to be aware of these issues in addition to everything else we're talking about. I mean, one of my favorite stories in the book is um, Catherine Flowers, who's an, she's an activist in rural Alabama. She grew up in Montgomery, Alabama on the route of the Selma to Montgomery March. And in her area, which was never fully incorporated as a municipality because of kind of traditions around slavery and who owned the land. And when, um, so the current inhabitants do not have wastewater treatment provided by um, their local government. And so the the waste from the homes is just being straight piped out into the yards. And she talks about, you know, just seeing like bits of toilet paper strewn all over backyards. And, and then she actually discovered that there was a real problem with ringworm, which is a tropical disease that we've you know, associated with the developing world. And now it's being found, you know, not just in rural Alabama, but in um, many areas in the United States. And just to recognize that, you know, there's people right now living in the United States that don't have the most basic ability to just flush a toilet. And I say to flush and forget, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're living in that waste. And um, that's just an example of, you know, an area where, you know, these people can't afford to put in, you know, individual septic systems. And they're also crazy laws where they're getting in, in trouble um, because they're not dealing with their waste properly, but it's absolutely unaffordable to them and it's not provided, you know, mm -hmm. by their municipality. So it's, mm -hmm. she just won a MacArthur Genius Prize and she has her own book called Wasted which I really recommend Catherine flowers. And she's a very special woman there. Every story is, um, every story is a unique narrative. And in every story you learn about the person. I love the questions you ask everyone at the beginning. It just makes them so human. These risks, you know, what do you love about yourself? What do you hate about yourself? I'm paraphrasing here, you know, mm -hmm. But worst thing that you ever did, I, it just makes these people so human for our, our kids as role mm -hmm. models. And then you hear about their story of becoming 
and then their idea and then what their idea is doing. And these are things that would have never crossed my mind when clothes are being made from vegetables and kelp is doing this and um, ugly fish are providing this. I mean, all of the, I'm just tipping, this is the tip of the iceberg that it actually, it's a mind expanding book because there's so much information that we all do need to know. And for everyone listening, throughout the book are ideas and exercises and activities and guidance to people of all ages of what they can do to make a difference on a daily basis. And one one thing I love is I give a list of documentaries that you you should watch. And three of the women in the book, they were inspired to get involved in environmental activism because of watching one film, which was mm. Al Gore and Inconvenient Truth. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I mean, I feel like calling up the guy and telling him, do you have any idea how many people saw that single movie, you know, 15 years ago and what an impact it made. And these were young girls at the time. Um, and it's, it's just pretty incredible to think that, you know, Susan Solomon, she was impacted by one individual. She saw the early films of Jacques Cousteau Mm -hmm. and that's what made her want to, you know, become a scientist and understand the natural world. So the impact of stories is real and we can really change the trajectory of a young person's interests and passions by introducing them to some new ideas and when they're you know at an impressionable age and they're not too young to understand this they're they're hearing it all in the media anyway and this is a way to have them hear it in a way that's you know more positive mhm mhm um we can't we can't wind down without talking about a little bit about social media. And this, this, I read this fact to uh, one of my kids this morning as I was telling them about your book and the show. And um, this person is an avid social media uh, enthusiast. Here's, here's, the, here's the fact, people. A single Instagram post from soccer star Ronaldo to his 240 million followers consumes as much energy as 10 United Kingdom households. A 2020 investigation into environmental impact revealed. And also, similarly, we all know and love Ariana Grande. She has almost as many followers. Same thing. So that's unbelievable. If we just think about all of the influencers and all the people on social media, that is mind-stretching. I know. Every time we do a search on the internet, it's like we're using all this power. Hmm. Well, and I guess we are learning about all of this because in the cryptocurrency world, you know, the conversation now is about the impact of generating Mining crypto, Bitcoin. right? Yeah. And that and the big and no one had ever thought of, you know, the, the the normal folks, the lay people, who would know who would who would even think about that. So this really is about getting information out to people so people can make informed decisions on the day-to-day life and take these very small steps. Because as you, as you said, this isn't about, you don't need to become a CEO to have a, a major impact on the world. Cause that could be or, daunting. Or even to become an environmental activist. You can just mm-hmm. become 
one person who joins the Sunrise Movement and becomes part of their phone banking for these upcoming midterm elections. One thing I'm most proud of is this list that I keep on my um, website, which is dianacap.com, and it's a list of over 200 ideas. It's it's just titled Things Teens Can Do, and I provide all the links. So it's places where you can get a sample letter if you want to write to a company and complain about you know the extent of their packaging, or if you want to find a place that will actually pay you to make social media posts about environmental issues, or if you want to join organizations like the Sunrise Movement or 350.org. There's so much that's already existing that is already got the, um, they're identifying the most important political races and the, the best ways for individuals to make impact. So you don't have to invent the wheel. You can, you can join hands with these existing um, places that are doing all kinds of good work. And I just give you a lot of ideas about whether it's planting trees or um writing op-eds, you know, there's so many different ways that you Mm -hmm. can take action. Mm -hmm. And that's where the hope comes in. Or throw a clothes swap. I'm I'm super into that fact that that's a really big idea. And it's something I've been Mm -hmm. doing on the book tour and teens already, they're sharing their clothes nonstop. And Mm -hmm. if they would just share them around in a kind of more organized way, then maybe people could spend less on fast fashion and and that whole problem is really mm-hmm. yucky. So mm-hmm. you end by saying the best path is in through your emotions. Notice what fires you up, what you are still heated or intrigued or obsessed about the next day, what you yearn to learn more about. Yeah. That's the indicator, right? For people, of all of us, at any age, like listen to ourselves, listen to, listen and feel what fires you up, what you really care about. And instead of doing all of the shoulds that society tells us we should do, maybe with our career or our behavior, listen to that inner voice. Yeah. Okay, Diana. It is time for the parent footprint moment question. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kid's life, and or those you love. So I thought hard about this and so much of my writing has been about encouraging career for young women particularly. And I think I, I came up with a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I had a mom who kind of, you know, she was in and out of career and she spent a lot of her time as a sex ed educator. And then she became a teacher, but I never really considered what she did like a quote unquote real career. And when my kids were born, I was so sort of dead set that I wasn't going to take a day more than, you know, two months off with each baby. And I was going to get right back to work. And when you're a freelancer, it's all got to come from sort of internal discipline and no one's going to tell you it's time to come back. And I had a real, a really black and white view about 
that, you know, women must work. And I wrote this piece that for San Francisco magazine right around 2008 and the, um, the recession, and it was called mother of all recessions. And it Hmm. was exploring the fact that at that time, a lot of women who weren't working and then their husbands were getting laid off due to the recession and like what a mess it was for these families. And then when the recession ended, how difficult it was for women to get back into work after having kind of gone off the path. And I, I wrote this article that was very opinionated, very black and white, that was sort of like, all women must work. It's the most important thing you can show your daughters. You know, it's absolutely urgent that all women work. And I really pissed off a lot of even my own friends. I have friends who I'm no longer friends with because they were so upset with kind of my take. And I will say that I've thought so much about that story and who I was when I wrote that story. Mm. And now, you know, years have gone by and, you know, I have a, you know, a middle daughter who, you know, faces a lot of anxiety and depression. And three years ago, I lost my mother. And I recognize that there's, there are phases in life that, um, mean that we can't be all about work and this demand on women that the only way is if we do it in this kind of very conventional path of, you know, gunning for career. And that's the only way to show our daughter the right model. I think I've, I've really had a lesson Mm -hmm. in kind of wanting to walk back that point of view Mm -hmm. and recognize like the seasons of, parenting and being a mother. And sometimes our energies are really demanded um, because of family issues and or other things. And that's okay. And some of these women that I write about, you know, they they didn't even start these companies. You know, Greg Renfrew founded Beauty Counter, which is now worth over a billion dollars. She founded it when she already had three children. (laughs) And she was washing them in the bath and she recognized that they, she wondered what she was rubbing all over her kids and the fact that there's no regulation for any chemicals in our cosmetics and beauty care. And now she's, you know, moving legislation and she's employing all these women sellers that are now making careers out of it. Anyway, it's, there is no one path and there's no, you must do it this way, even though I'm, a huge proponent for that women should be ambitious and they should dream big about what's possible for them. They also need to kind of be real about the constraints of, of their life or the phase of life they're in. And it doesn't mean that they can't still have a huge impact. So that's yes, yes. something I've thought a lot about. And, 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 and modeling that you don't always get it right and that you can change your mind and that, right. And that you can shift and you yeah. continue to learn as, as you go through life, that uh, thing, things change, the situation changes, we change and our perspectives change. For sure. For yeah. sure. We just have to be open to that happening and willing to kind of eat it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eat it with, uh, Again, like lean in, right? Like what is, what is the worst thing that can happen if we admit we have changed or we think differently or we made a mistake? What is the worst thing that can happen? Right. 
Probably yeah. the best thing is we'll probably actually really teach our kids something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Diana, thank you so much for um, sharing your book and yourself with us. Um, it really is it is a head spinner. And everyone, please do read this. I, I, th- I thought of beyond my girls, um, friends, so many people to share the book with who I know will want to learn about what's in there. Not only these facts that we need to know about, but also all the things that we can do while also looking at aspirational people who expand us and uh, make us want to do more by their example. Definitely. Uh, you already mentioned this, but mention again where people can find all of your resources and your books and everything you're gathering. So the books are available at your independent bookseller. And if they don't have it, tell them to order it. That's the number one place. But you can also find it online at Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, Amazon, Target. Um, I have a website, dianacapp.com, which has information about the books, the articles I've written, and then this list of resources I was mentioning, which is Um, articles and films you can watch, and then also a list of 200 things that teens can actually do. And I have an Instagram, which is at Girls Who Books, and that has a link tree, which also has that list of resources. Nice. Check it out, everyone. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Diana. Have a great day. You too. And everyone else, have a great day. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this show with everyone that you think will benefit, which will be many. We appreciate and love your five-star reviews. Do the best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.